Coming up on today's show, the Battle of Alberta has arrived. First time in 31 years. Does Canada need to do more to confront white supremacy in our country based on what we saw play out in Buffalo, New York over the weekend? And ancient fire prevention practices. Are we ignoring what our Indigenous communities can teach us? It's big. It's important. And uh, I think Daryl Sutter nailed it. Um, He said it very well, why I think this is such an important time for our province. We're going to chat now with Dan Mason. Uh, Dan is a professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation. Dan, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. You know, when we talk about this, did you hear Daryl Sutter's comments? No, I didn't. Just, I'll just play them for you because I think he sort of put, hits the nail on the head for me anyway. He was asked, you know, it's Battle of Alberta. Is it important? And uh, basically he says, yeah, it's important. Yeah, is it important, Emirates? It's important. It's great for the league. It's great for Alberta, especially when this went on, right? COVID, oil and gas, uh, livestock, agriculture, we've all got smoked here the last two years, right? So it's good to see that energy and all that positive, and it's awesome. So I, I agree with him 100%, Dan, but are we making too much of this? Is this just a hockey playoff series, or is he right? This is that important to the province. Um, I think it really depends on how you look at it. Like, I think from an economic perspective, there's not necessarily a huge windfall to the province as a whole, but certainly you can feel a buzz in the city being in Edmonton um, you can see the flags on the cars, and you can feel that buzz that's that's happening. And so that's something that's difficult to quantify, but it's certainly it's certainly there, and is an important, tangible benefit to a community. It's interesting you say the economic benefit isn't there because we've heard so much. Maybe it's just a transfer of economic activity, but we've heard so much from the hospitality industry that they cannot wait for this to get started because they're expecting great things based on what they've already seen. Yeah, I think what you're just seeing is people are spending their money in one particular area as opposed to another. So the the people that are spending the money at the games or at the bars around the facility are just not spending it somewhere else. And so as a, as a province as a whole, if you, even if you have people from Calgary going up to Edmonton to watch games and vice versa, you're just shifting that money around. However, a city like Calgary might benefit if more Oilers fans make, decide to make the trip to go see a game down there. But that's the, it's sort of a wash for the province as a whole. Provincially, gotcha. That makes sense. Um, yeah. In terms of industries that do see a benefit, and like you say, it's all from the same pot of money, but hospitality obviously is the big one. But is there spinoffs? Are there other industries that are sort of, hey, this is going to be a windfall for them too? Um, I think it's, it, that's a little bit more difficult to, to measure because there's so many other factors that could be influencing people's spending and that sort of thing. But I think certainly... Um, there are people that are interested in, in selling merchandise and that kind of thing. And, yeah. and I'm, I imagine people are buying a lot more now as a result of the jumping on the bandwagon, so to speak. You know, Dan, as we've talked about this on the air in the past week or so, um, there's been a lot of texts I'm getting from the audience in Calgary saying, boy, I hope city council is paying attention to what's happening in our city and all the people turning out in their Flames jerseys and supporting this team and how much it means to our community, and they'll recognize that we need an arena. Can something like this um, have that kind of an impact on a community, do you think? Um, I think it can have an influence on on government. I think... um in 1995, the New Jersey Devils were being wooed by Nashville um, to potentially relocate their franchise. And so that was when the Devils were on their Stanley Cup run. And I think certainly that gave a lot of ammunition to the Devils to justify some public spending for the facility in order to keep the team there. Now, I think that it's a little bit more, um, I think a better way to look at it might be just to say, okay, well, even if you're not a Flames fan or an Oilers fan, you can probably agree that having this 
series is a good thing. Right. So all things being equal. So the, then the question is, is it just how much public money should go into it, if at all? And so I think that that's the other question or other argument. And then the problem that, that cities face is that because they control the number of franchises that are available, that sort of gives that bargaining leverage to the team. So I think that, that's kind of the broader question that, that needs to be discussed. But certainly there's no better time than a Stanley Cup playoff run to justify or argue for public subsidization of some kind of facility. You know, I, I've got a text from Dave, and I know there's a lot, and I had the same thought initially, too. He says, I call BS. This is stimulating a lot of people to go out and spend money on shirts and jerseys and other things they wouldn't normally buy, as well as go out to restaurants where they normally would not go to. I mean, I think a lot of people think, oh, this is going to be such an economic boom. But but basically, the research shows, right? I mean, you're not just speculating here, Dan. Research shows no, that no. it's money that's spent anyway. It's just where and how it's spent, right? Yeah, I think I think the best way to think about it is that if you don't go to a Flames game or go out for a, to a sports bar near the arena the night of the game and watch the game there, do you not eat? Right. Do you just stay at home in the fetal position and and and, and not you know like. So what's happening is is that you're just seeing a, a, a drop in the economic activity that's usually dispersed throughout the community. So you'll see an ink a big increase for hospitality in and around the arena. But you won't necessarily see that drop because it's some people won't go to Safeway and, and buy groceries. Some people won't go to a restaurant near their home. Some people won't order some food in. And so that that's that sort of incremental drop that's then being shifted to spending that's near the arena. So um, certainly, and, and the other thing to keep in mind is that people only have so much money to spend. Yes. So you can't create new money to spend. So people have a certain amount of money that they have available to spend on entertainment, and they're more than willing to spend it on the Flames or the Oilers. But if they don't go to that Flames game or Oilers game or go to that sports bar, they will spend it on something else. They're going to a concert, they're going to a movie, they're, whatever the case may be. Yeah, whatever it happens to be. It's just you don't, because it's dispersed, you can't see that drop elsewhere. You can only see the gain around the arena or at the arena. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, we talked about what this might mean to uh, some civic political situations in Calgary. When you take a look at this, this what's going to happen over the next two weeks and the interest and the enthusiasm, the excitement and all this sort of stuff, does it mean more to one city than, the, uh, than another? Is, is winning this series more important to Edmonton than Calgary or vice versa? Um, I'm not sure. I think you know, each city has a, its own relationship with its respective sports team. Yeah. So I think that certainly um, both... Calgary and Edmonton have had some lean years with regards to the competitiveness of their team, at least in the playoffs. So I think that I think you couldn't necessarily argue that one benefits more than the other. I think that that certainly it's great for the province and it's great for fans all over Canada, for that matter, to see this series and see this game. And I think that the best case scenario would be that the games game goes long. The series goes along and that there's a lot of close games and a lot of exciting games for people to enjoy. You know, I think you take a look at Calgary and Edmonton, and we know these both markets are absolutely hockey crazy, and it, it spills far beyond the cities. It's all across the province. It's all across the West, really. Um, I'm wondering about the league. They, they Would they be more interested in a Dallas-LA series? Do they wish the first round went the other way? If you're the NHL, <laughs> how good is this series versus one with two massive American cities? Um, I think at one time they would have been more excited about an L.A. Dallas series because they were trying to expand that footprint in the United States or expand that audience. But I think the NHL is savvy enough to understand that the, the, 
the bread and butter of the league is these rivalries like Calgary and Edmonton. And so I think that they're, I think they're more than happy that the series is going on. Um, I think that in, as, as a whole, a league would probably want a larger market team to go further because yeah. that increases your television audience. But I think certainly you have these pockets of fans in certain cities like in Edmonton and Calgary that punch well above their weight, so to speak, with regards to support. So um, I don't think you can really compare it across, you know, sort of generally speaking across market sizes. I think it's very context-specific or specific to the particular market. It's going to be fun, though, and uh, I'm sure we're all in. Would you, would you dare to make a prediction, Dan? No, I'm actually just excited <laughs> to see. Uh, <laughs> I've, been, I've been around long enough to know that that's not my, uh, my ballywick, so I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say I hope it's an exciting series for everybody. Yeah, everybody has fun. That's what we're all hoping for. <laughs> Dad, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. No problem at all. Thanks. That's Dan Mason, who is a professor at the University of Alberta, Faculty of Kinesiology, Sport and Recreation. He studies sports franchises and sports leagues, and um, he's, uh, he's a wealth of knowledge on this information. I think if you're the NHL, and, and I know a lot of us up in Canada think, you know, this is crazy, the way they treat Canadians. But part of it is they know Edmonton and Calgary are absolutely hockey crazy. And it, there's going to be a huge audience for anything and everything that the Oilers and the Flames do. It doesn't matter. Um, so would they rather it's L.A., Dallas? I mean, both those teams have had pretty good successful runs. But would they like to see it expand into a market that really hasn't had the excitement, like he mentioned, New Jersey whipping up back in 1995? Um, or L.A. when Gretz went down there and, and, you know, they started their marches and all these sorts of things. You know, like, I'm trying to think of a market off the top of my head. Nashville's all in. We know that. Vegas has got a pretty good fan base. But is there a market somewhere that hasn't had the cup run, that hasn't had the excitement that the whole town gets wrapped up in that might really improve hockey in some markets? Could be. Could be. The headlines and the newscasts uh, have been filled with the headlines from Buffalo over the past few days. And um, it's another hate-fueled mass shooting in the United States. And there's been more and more of them. There really has. Um, it's, it's still mind-boggling to a lot of us how this can happen time and time and time and time again in the United States with shocking regularity. Uh, and they seem completely and utterly incapable of stopping um, the gun violence in the U.S. Just can't. It goes on like it does nowhere else in the world, right? Um, and obviously, it's far less common to have incidents like that in Calgary. I mean, it's not unheard of. We all know it has happened, but um, not to the same extent. However, the underlying motivation in this case, you know, the replacement theory, white supremacy, whatever the case may be, we know that exists in Canada, Our intelligence community has told us about the increase and how it's becoming a major concern for them, just like the intelligence community in the United States has talked about. Um, So do we need to be a little more tuned in than we are? We're going to chat with Brad Galloway now. Uh, Brad is the coordinator of the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism at Ontario Tech University. Brad, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me in. You know, I, I get the feeling that a lot of Canadians watch what happens in the U.S. and say, boy, what a mess it is in that country. Good thing we're not like that. But, okay, we're not like that in many... Obviously, we don't see these kinds of violence happening uh, with anywhere you know, even close to the same frequency. However, that underlying motivation, that extremism, that hate, we know that does exist in Cal- in Canada, right? 
Absolutely, it does. I mean, there's been, uh, un- unfortunately, of course, there's been a, a long history of this, this, uh, these types of movements and, and hatred and, and types of attacks have happened in Canada as well. And, and we, we very well know that, uh, you know, Quebec City, the mass shooting, um, and I can go on and on from there. But, but I mean, it's, 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 we're not, um, you know, it's not something that we haven't experienced before. Um, when we talk about that rising tide of hatred and extremism that we're seeing in the United States and that, you know, they've been talking about in their intelligence community down there saying, you know, the, the white supremacist domestic terrorist is the biggest threat to national security. Mm-hmm. CSIS has said much the same thing here. Are there stats around what we're seeing in terms of the increase in our country? I mean, there's... There's an, uptick in, uh, there's an uptick in in uh, individual, um, you know, involvement in the in these types of groups. There's you know uh, across the communities, uh, the academic communities, uh, law enforcement, intelligence communities, where they are all recognizing the same thing, which is that this this type of thing is increasing and it's becoming uh, more dangerous as it goes along here. And we need to you know we need to be thinking about what what we're uh, going going to do to get in front of this. Um, and what are we doing? I know the, the government has actually designated some of these groups, you know, terrorist organizations within our country. They still exist in the United States. So we're aware of this, at least, right? Yeah, I mean, we've, there have been some policy decisions that have, that have come down the line. Um, there's uh, definitely community-level things that are going on. Um, you know, I've had the benefit to work in, uh, you know, uh, uh, like programs that actually deal with uh, intervention, uh, with um, you know, uh, helping people leave these types of uh, uh, right-wing yeah. extremist groups, if you will. Which is, yeah. So there's, there's, we're developing things to try to get ahead of this. However, obviously, we're we're not uh, we're not catching up to it um, as as much as we could be. There, there needs to be more efforts uh, surrounding uh, evaluating which things are working and, and which things are are, are not. And we've got to uh, you know push forward here. Um, when we see this, is it all online, Brad? Is that primarily? I mean, is that why we're seeing such an increase over the past? I don't know, ten, fifteen years. <clears throat> I look at this this uh, this type of thing as. It's opportunistic as well. Uh, the internet is obviously some uh, um, a, a huge piece here where these groups have taken advantage of it and said, "Well, this is an opportunity. We're going to use this." Uh, they'll, they'll utilize anything, wh- whether it be, you know, uh, a trucker convoy or a, you know, a, a yellow vest movement, or generally speaking, the internet. How can we? How they say? How can we get our message out? And this is a. As we know, in Information Highway, they can put out messaging. They can do all sorts of different things on there. They can create their own spaces where they can communicate with each other. Um, and this has uh, historically been a uh, yeah, it's 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 been part of their their plan uh, to to recruit and sort of um, uh, contribute to you know people being radicalized towards these types of movements in the online space. However, I, I believe that. At the end of the day, it's it's always about action. At the end, um, and that's that's what we unfortunately uh, most recently have seen in, in in Buffalo here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the inevitable outcome. Unfortunately, when we talk about and you mentioned earlier, we need to do make sure we're getting out in front of this. How do we do that? I mean, it seems to be growing in so many different ways. How, how do you get in front of something like this? Well, I mean, in in my space particularly, I look at uh, you know being. Uh, involved in this academic research that that uh, we can we can do 
you know, to, uh, uh, you know, interrogate these issues a little further so that we can figure out what's behind them, uh, whether it's the identity pieces, all of, the, all of this, but also, uh, you know, building out prevention programs on, on uh, primary, secondary, and, and tertiary programs that um, we look at trying to get education out there to, to the public, start earlier, uh, you know, even school, school level uh, kind of thing that isn't talking about this kind of thing, but but you know uh, that that whole line of diversity, inclusion, equity. Um, you know our responsibility, um, uh, particularly as Canadians, to uh, provide a safe space for for our children and for uh, the people that are trying to grow grow in this world. Um, it's it's this it's something that we don't like, and it's an unnatural feeling when we hear, "Well, these are our own that are doing this." Yeah, you know, um, and that's. Uh, we need to, you know, be out there taking taking care of uh, our our people and and not leaving them with uh, so many questions and leaving them vulnerable to uh, these types of uh, movements and situations. Yeah, exactly. I think you're right. When it is, you know, it's it's not somebody coming from somewhere else to attack us. It, it's within that 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 changes the whole perspective for a lot of people, and that's why it's so alarming. I think for the intelligence communities, it's so much harder to to track, trace, mm-hmm. and stop. Mm-hmm. Brad, I appreciate yeah. your time. Yeah, no worries, Seth. Thanks again for having me in. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. That is Brad Galloway, who is the coordinator of the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism, Ontario Tech University. We know wildfires have become a major issue, right? Uh, Going back to Slave Lake, and then we had Fort McMurray, we had Lytton, but there's been several more. And they seem to be getting bigger and worse and more frequent. Um, So we're what can we do to prevent them, right? There's been a lot of discussion around that and the way that we build communities in forested areas and things like that. Well, there's a lot of people, and we've talked about this before, saying, hey, I mean, you can ask our Indigenous communities. They've dealt with this for a very, very long time. They they have a lot of knowledge. I mean, the knowledge is there. Um, so some of the practices that have been employed for a very long time, or used to be anyway, are being revisited now. So uh, to tell us about that, we're going to chat with Kira Hoffman, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of British Columbia. Uh, Kira, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's true. I, I, I know we've had this conversation you know, somewhat in the past, but it seems like it's coming more to the surface now in terms of there is a body of knowledge that exists out there, right, in terms of um, preventing fires. There's a a very vast body of knowledge, I think, that we haven't really appreciated or fully understood, and and we're still in the process of of trying to understand it, um, mostly from a Western perspective. But yes, uh, Canada's Indigenous peoples, um, including Inuit, Métis, First Nations, have used fire um, for thousands of years as a tool for resource management, and one part of that is um, a tool for reducing the risk of natural lightning-started fires. Right, yeah. I mean, they had a relationship with, with fire in many different capacities. What happened? Why, why did we get away from those practices? Uh, I think a lot of those practices have still continued. Um, but in the 1930s, there was a ban on cultural burning. And so it became illegal to burn across broader uh, Indigenous territories. And we moved into reserve systems uh, where some burning could occur, but there's a lot of red tape for doing it. Um, so a lot of the narrative around fire, so fire became kind of this this enemy or 
this big disaster when before it used to be part more of everyday life. Um, and it, it's really associated with how we value timber and want to protect timber for um, the economy. And so uh, that that kind of flip in perspective of fire really happened at that time. And now as we're almost 100 years later trying to revitalize fire, uh, within our communities, and especially Indigenous fire practitioners moving to revitalize it. There's a lot of roadblocks to making that happen. Okay, so we'll get to the roadblocks in a moment, but first, why are we making the shift? Like like you say, it happened 100 years ago, we shifted away from that. Now we're talking about shifting back to that. Um, what's been the impetus in sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, let's revisit that choice we made a long time ago, because maybe it was the wrong choice. Yeah, it it definitely was the wrong choice um, because you can't continue to suppress fires in the way that we have. Uh, We're in a situation now where we're getting to uncontrollable fires. So it's not that they're just large because large fires have always happened. It's that they're really more impactful. So we're seeing hotter fires. We're seeing longer fired seasons. We are seeing communities directly impacted and fatalities associated with that. Uh, It's really important that a lot of those practices, it's not about going back, it's about moving forward and adapting to the changing climate, uh, to changing, uh, you know, community situations too, to changing desires. Uh, So I think that uh, we have to be careful and that we consider, you know, shifting backwards. It's not about that. It's about really... um, supporting Indigenous-led solutions that have always been there, have always been adapting and changing to these ever-changing environments. And that, you know, there is that wealth of knowledge, and and it might be slightly different from what we consider to be Western science, uh, but Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous science is very strong and alive in many communities. So you mentioned some of the roadblocks. Is that one of them? The fact that you're sort of, they, they don't necessarily come together seamlessly? There, there, there is some difference there? But I'd actually say that fire ecologists, um, you know, who have gone through Western um, academic settings are are very much in line with um, Indigenous knowledge. So their Western uh, fire ecologists would say, you know, myself, I'm one of them, that we need fire applied to the broader landscape at at a massive scale. And I think that most Indigenous fire practitioners would agree with that. So it's actually more the general public Uh, and the policymakers and decision-makers that are providing some of those roadblocks just because of the lack of understanding of what Indigenous fire stewardship or prescribed um, fire is, and then how do we actually apply it at the scale we need in a really safe way. What are we... What are we getting wrong? What I mean, what is the, the misconceptions that we have that are, you know, causing sort of sand in the gears here? What, what, what do we not understand properly? I think that most people, when they think about um, applying controlled fire, prescribed fire, cultural burning, which are very different, um, they think about trees being removed from the landscape. So like whole big forest areas burned. But that's not what's happening. Um, These fires, when they're applied, they're applied usually in the spring and fall, often when there's snow still on the ground, when there's good venting conditions, so you're not dealing with a lot of smoke. But also these fires are very light and they're called cool burns for a reason. It's because they take off kind of that dead layer of vegetation, but your trees are staying standing. You know, you're not losing forest uh, to controlled fire. Uh, Much of these fires are 
are actually regenerative. So they're really, you know, designed to be healthy components of those forests. A lot of our forests across Canada are fire dependent. Mm -hmm. So they need fire in order to be healthy. A lot of our communities actually need fire in order to be healthy. And those are ecosystems and human communities. Are we seeing more of an uptake? Is it happening more frequently? Is it being embraced more widely? I think it's uh, starting to be embraced, but applying it is now very difficult after we've, you know, said no, 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 no to fire for so long. We've lost a lot of our ability to apply it because we don't have people in those roles. Um, It's also very difficult to get a permit to burn, to be accredited, to be a burner, um, to do ignitions, or to actually... Um, if you are Indigenous, trying to burn across your traditional territories is not really happening. And so, um, yeah, we've kind of fallen off the wagon a little bit Mm -hmm. (laughs) with regards to burning, but there's a lot of great examples of how to get started again, um, how we can build up training and capacity. Um, And so there's, there's really clear ways forward. And and like you say, I mean, we're starting down that path, and hopefully, the more it happens, the the more um, acceptance there will be. Right, seeing how effective and it can be. I guess it's sort of the proof is in the pudding. Is it that simple? Yeah, it is really simple. Um, you know, there's tons of examples from Western North America. Um, to put this a little bit in perspective, uh, more fire is applied in the state of Florida each year than in all of Canada. So there is definitely ways that we can move forward. Um, And I think it just takes a little bit of, you know, public support, um, becoming more comfortable with fire, uh, understanding that, you know, fire can be applied in a really safe way and and that there is major steps um, in order to make that happen. So fuel mitigation around communities, uh, making sure removing, you know, dead and dry, dense fuels that have been there for a long time so that yeah. when you actually do go to apply fire, that it's really safe to do it. Fascinating discussion, Kira. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.